Our story opens with 12 brothers. That's right, 12. Their dad is Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. You know, the father Abraham had many sons. That guy. Anyway, number 11 out of Jacob's 12 sons, this dude, his name is Joseph. Now, for all you moms and dads out there, I know you don't have favorites, but Jacob does. He loves Joseph the most, and everybody knows it. He even gives Joseph this flashy, colorful coat just to rub it in all their faces. Well, that ticks off the other brothers enough that they start planning to kill Joseph. Yikes! They are dead set on showing their pipe-dreaming brother he's not as special as everyone says. Certainly not special enough to fulfill whatever fancy purpose he thinks God's calling him to. Then Joseph's brothers decide, hey, you know what'll really teach that little punk a lesson? If we sell him into slavery. And so Joseph gets hauled off to Egypt. At this point, you gotta wonder if Joseph thinks any other surprises might be coming his way. I mean, what else could possibly go wrong? Yeah, about that. Joseph becomes a servant in the house of a guy named Potiphar, and Potiphar's wife accuses Joseph of some pretty risque stuff. So Joseph ends up in prison. Looks like Joseph's situation has gone from bad to worse. You certainly couldn't blame Joseph for feeling forgotten or like there's no way God could still use him to do anything important. But thankfully, Joseph knows God, and God has something special in store. While Joseph's in jail, he gets on the Pharaoh's good side. So Pharaoh sets him free and basically makes him his right-hand man. That's when Egypt starts going through a famine. And guess who comes to buy food? Joseph's brothers who had it out for him. Now, Joseph could easily get his revenge, but he ends up giving his brothers food, forgiveness, and he ultimately saves his entire family. Turns out God did have a big purpose for Joseph's life, even in the midst of some seriously terrible stuff happening. Just listen to what Joseph tells his brothers. You guys planned all this for evil, but God planned it for good, to save people's lives. And that's the same promise God makes all of us today. He will use our stories for good when we begin finding purpose in uncertainty. Welcome, everybody, to the weekend. Before we jump into the last message in our series, Finding Purpose in Uncertainty, let me just address what those of us who are living here in Minnesota are experiencing and feeling. It has been a gauntlet of emotions and concern with what is taking place here in the Twin Cities in particular. And I know a lot of folks are wondering, what can we do? What should we do? Well, the first thing that I would encourage us to do is to be praying for the family of George Floyd, for the family of Dante Wright. We should also be praying for all of the officers who are involved in these two incidents. We should be praying for justice. We should be praying for forgiveness. We should be praying that we as a people in general uh, would work always toward peace and toward valuing one another. We should pray that we would seek to live and adjust our lives to God's truth as an absolute for our lives. It's a danger that happens when we become each a law unto ourselves. And so it's so important for us now as a Christian community uh, to be showing and demonstrating the love of Christ, the hope of forgiveness. So continue to pray that way and lift all of these people up before the Lord and pray that somehow God might take these tragedies 
and use them uh, to bring glory to himself as we realize that our answer is found in Christ and in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, these are difficult times for our, our nation and in particular here in the Twin Cities. And we ask God in these days as followers of Christ, we ask God that you would give us grace and wisdom to know how to respond in a Christ-like way. Father, we do lift up uh, the families of these individuals, Lord, that have been in the news, the families uh, and relatives of George Floyd and Dante Wright. We pray and ask God for uh, grace. We pray and ask, Lord, for peace that passes understanding. We pray and ask, Lord, you'll find strength and hope in you. We pray for the officers, Lord, involved in these things. We pray, O oh God, that they too would turn to you, Father, that they would uh, look to you and, and seek you in this time and that you would strengthen, Lord, across our state and across our nation, those charged with keeping the law to do so in a way, O oh God, that uh, is exercising wisdom as well as grace. We pray, Lord, for justice in all of this. We pray that you give wisdom to those who oversee these things, O oh God. We pray for uh, peace, Lord, that passes understanding through it all. We pray for ourselves. We pray for our nation that we would turn back towards you and seek you, O oh God, and your truth alone. Have mercy on us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I don't know if you have ever had somebody in your life that you have really looked up to and respected and probably seen as a bit of a model that you would like to model your life after. I know I've had people like that in my life and continue to have people like that in my life. Maybe it's a family member. Uh, maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a celebrity, a sports star. Maybe it's a religious leader. And uh, you just have so much respect for them and you kind of let them set the pace for how you live your life. And then one day they blow it. I mean, big time. And it's devastating to you. It's devastating to me. Here are these people we've looked up to and tried to emulate. And all of a sudden, you know, they crash and they burn morally or ethically or in some other way. And uh, it kind of leaves us bewildered. And sometimes we watch their lives and we see, we see them admit that what they've done is wrong. We wonder if they really mean it. And we give them time and space. And it appears that they have truly repented. And suddenly we feel kind of like we can trust them again. Our faith has been restored. And then all of a sudden they relapse and they really blow it again. It's in those moments that you can become easily discouraged, easily despondent, and just want to throw your hands up and say, here we go again. Is there anybody that we can look to? Are there any models? Are there any examples out there anymore? When that happens in your life, and I'm sure it has to some degree, what do you do? Well, Joseph, Joseph wept. Joseph cried. In fact, if you read the story of Joseph, the whole story, the whole narrative, you'll see that he weeps a lot, at least six times that I counted that Joseph wept. You know, there's some people that say, you know, a man who cries is a man who is weak. Well, I want you to know that Joseph was anything but weak. I mean, this is a guy that was brutalized by his brothers, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, thrown into prison, forgotten about. Then, you know, God raises him up and makes him the vizier to Pharaoh, the prime minister of Egypt. No, no, no. Joseph was not weak. He was a man of great strength, 
great courage, and great faith. So the question is, why does he weep then? Why does he cry? The same reason why God often weeps over you and over me. You say, why does God weep over us? We'll answer that question just a little bit. But first, I want to ask the question, why is Joseph weeping? Toward the end of the narrative of Joseph's life in chapter 50, his dad, Jacob, dies. And it says in the text that Joseph threw himself on his father's body and he wept and he kissed him. And then he called his physicians and he said, embalm the body, which took about 40 days. And then he sought permission from Pharaoh to take his father's body back to Canaan, to the family burial cave that Abraham, his great-grandfather, had bought, and then to put him in that cave and mourn his loss. And, and Pharaoh says, sure, you can go. And so Joseph takes his family, he takes his brothers and their families, and it says that some of the high officials, the highest officials of Egypt, also went along as senior members of Pharaoh's family. You know, they're not going because they love and respected Jacob as much as they loved and respected Joseph. They're going because they love Joseph. He's been a savior to them. He has saved Egypt. So it's out of honor and respect that, he go, that they go with him. Now, it's after that that we run into the incident that I want us to take a close look at in the life of Joseph. Let's start reading chapter 50. It says, But now that their father was dead, the brother's father was dead, Joseph's brothers, it says, became fearful. They became fearful. Now Joseph will show his anger and pay us back for all the wrong we did to him. Is it? I mean, it's kind of good to see that they finally admit we've done wrong. So, and this becomes really important. So they sent this message to Joseph. In other words, the message comes out of their concern about themselves. Before your father died, he instructed us, they said to Joseph, to say to you, please forgive your brothers for the great wrong they did to you, for their sin in treating you so cruelly. So we, the servants of the God of your father, beg you to forgive our sins. Now watch this. When Joseph received the message, remember? So here's the message based on how we feel. This is what our father said to us. It says, when Joseph received the message, he broke down and he wept. He broke down and he wept. So the question that we want to ask is, is why does he break down and why does he weep at this point in the story? We go back to the scriptures and it says, that his brothers came and threw themselves down before Joseph. Look, we are your slaves, they said. But Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. No, don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you and your children. So he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. So why does Joseph weep? Joseph weeps 
because he knows that his brothers are lying to him. They're being dishonest. His dad didn't say that. Most scholars agree that the brothers are making this message up. And it causes Joseph to weep, that they would lie to him, that they would see that their sin is greater than the grace and love that he's been demonstrating to them ever since they've come back with their families. Now, Joseph knew his father would never say something like that. And that's because Joseph really knew his father. And listen, his father really knew Joseph. And they understood something that they both now shared in common. Both of them had experienced a brokenness, a good kind of brokenness in their life. You know, Jacob struggled with deception and pride and a very stubborn kind of spirit. And he went through a gauntlet of trial and suffering before that was broken. In the strangest incident in the Old Testament, Genesis 32, it says that he wrestled with the Lord. And at the end of the wrestling match, the Lord touched his hip socket and became dislocated. And he ended up with this limp the rest of his life, a physical limp. But the physical limp spoke of something much more significant. It spoke of a new humility in Jacob's life, a brokenness and dependence now on God in his life. Joseph also had a limp. It wasn't a physical limp, but it was an emotional, spiritual limp created by the gauntlet of suffering and trials that he went through to break his own pride and arrogance and bring him into a place of humility and dependence on God. Father and son shared that together. You know, as I was thinking about that, I was reminded that Jesus, you know, Jesus had a limp as well. That the limp was in his wrists and in his feet, those nail prints which he bears for eternity. A reminder to him and a reminder to all of us that he gave his life because of our brokenness. He humbled himself for you and me. He went through a gauntlet of suffering and death. So we could have eternal life. How about you? Do you have a limp in your life? Do you have something that God has allowed or used in your life to bring you to a place of brokenness, humility, and dependence on him? I know that there's a limp like that in my life that I kind of fought for many years until I finally realized that God could take what was done to me and redeem it in causing me to depend on him and look to his grace. How about you? No, listen, Joseph was not weak. Joseph knew his dad, and he knew what those boys were up to. And so what Joseph does is he sets out to bring into their lives the same experience that he had in his own life a brokenness, a humility, and a dependence on God. Now, I can kind of understand why the brothers were fearful and concerned. When you think about all that they did to Joseph, I'd be a little worried too. I mean, let's revisit what we've learned in the story for just a couple of minutes. We know that they had a murderous anger toward Joseph. And when Joseph came their way, out of the protection of his father, they wanted to kill him. 
But instead they threw him into that empty cistern. Remember that? It tells us in Genesis chapter 42 that while they ate their meal, Joseph cried out in anguish, get me out of here. But they ignored his call, his cries. How callous can you be? Remember what they did? They tore his coat up and they killed the goat and they soaked it in the blood and they brought it back to their father and they said, huh, look, uh, it appears to be Joseph's coat. Some wild animal must have, uh, must have, must have killed him. Uh, it, you know, here, I, I think this is your son's. Notice the emphasis, this is your son, not our brother. What callous characters. Meanwhile, Joseph goes through trial and suffering. He's rejected, he's betrayed, he's thrown into prison, he's forgotten, he's raised up to be the vizier of Egypt. Finally, the famine comes and spreads all the way up into Canaan. Jacob and his boys are facing starvation. He sends them to Egypt to buy food. They show up, and who do they meet? Joseph. But they don't recognize him. Joseph looks like and speaks like an Egyptian, but Joseph recognizes them. And what happens is Joseph puts them through a gauntlet, not to torture them, but to bring that same kind of brokenness that his father Jacob had, that he learned, and that they needed in their lives as well. A brokenness. A brokenness. Did it work? Well, let's see. When they show up to buy grain, remember what happened? Joseph uh, tells them, I think you're spying out the land. And he asks them questions about the family and finds out they have a younger brother. Of course, Joseph knew that. And he says to them, okay, I'm going to give you your grain. I'm going to send you home, but I'm going to keep one of you. And he keeps Simeon, one of the brothers. And he says, if you want your brother back, produce that little broy that you say, that little brother that you guys have, and then I'll believe you're not spies in the land. So he sends them away with grain. And then they get back and they tell their father, the father's distraught, you know, misery and Time goes by, we're not told how long. They run out of grain, they need food again. And, and Judah says, look, we've got, to take, we've got to take Benjamin back with us. If we don't, we don't get Simeon, we don't get grain. Reluctantly, Jacob allows them to take Benjamin and, and Judah promises basically his life in exchange for Benjamin if something happens. They come down to Egypt, Joseph sees the brothers, he sees Benjamin, and he gives them back Simeon, packs their bags full of Grain sends him on their way, but has one of his officials plant his favorite silver cup in Benjamin's bag. The officials stop the guys before they're able to get out of town and away. And he accuses them. He says, one of you has stolen something that's very precious and important to my master, Joseph. Remember the response? Here's what they said. What are you talking about? We are your servants and we'd never do such a thing. Didn't we return the money we found in our sacks the first time? We brought it back all the way from the land of Canaan. Why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If you find this cup with any one of us, let that man die and all the rest of us, my Lord, will be your slaves. So they search the bags and they find that silver cup in Benjamin's bag. Now the brothers come back and they offer themselves to be all of them to be slaves before Joseph. They are horrified of what has happened. Now, do you understand, at that point, it was a real test. It was a real test for the brothers, and especially for the loudest mouth, Judah. I mean, these guys had the option at this point to do 
with Benjamin what they did with Joseph 20 years earlier. The guys could have come back and simply said to Joseph, you know what? <laughs> Our brother is guilty. He is a thief. You can keep him. Because Joseph said, look, I'm not going to make all of you my slaves. Just, you know, just, just you guys go and I'll keep the young one. They could have easily said, yep, he's yours. Goodbye. And headed back home. They could have said to the father, well, father, I hate to tell you this, but, you know, your favorite son ended up being a thief. And so he's being kept there in Egypt. Sorry about your son. I guess you have to find another favorite one. They could have said that. They could have done that. But instead, watch what happens. Judah says, and now, my Lord, I cannot go back to my father without the boy. A father's life is bound up in the boy's life. If he sees that the boy is not with us, our father will die. We are servants. will indeed be responsible for sending that grieving white-haired man to his grave. My Lord, I guarantee to my father that I would take care of the boy. I told him, if I don't bring him back to you, I will bear the blame forever. So please, my Lord, let me stay here as a slave instead of the boy. And let the boy return with his brothers. For how can I return to my father if the boy is not with me? I couldn't bear to see the anguish this would cause my father. There it is. There it is. Judah passes the test. He has a limp. There's a brokenness in him. There's a humility in him. He's actually willing to substitute his life for his younger brother's life. 20 years ago, he sold his young brother Joseph for 20 pieces of silver. Now he's offering his life for Benjamin. Here he's concerned about his father. It would tear me up to watch my old father suffer and die because his son isn't brought back, his favorite son. There's no anguish, there's no tear, tearing of the soul when they went to Jacob and showed that Joseph, uh, showed Jacob the bloody coat of Joseph and said, look, must belong to your son. What a changed life. Something good has come out of all of this. And notice what it says in the text. In that same context, it says Joseph, when that happened, when Judah made that confession, it says he broke down and he what? And he wept. Now, why did Joseph cry in that incident? Because finally, finally he could see a brokenness in his brothers and especially in Judah. I'm sure there were a hurricane of emotions swirling in Joseph's soul at that point. But I know that one of the streams that fed his tears was a stream of grace, was a stream of love, was a stream of forgiveness. Remember what he said to them? He said, I am Joseph. Chapter 45 is revealing himself. I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. Now hurry back to my father and tell him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me master over all the land of Egypt. So come down to me immediately. You can live in the region of Goshen where you can be near me with all your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and everything that you own. I will take care of you there, for there are still five years of famine ahead of us. Weeping, it says again, weeping with joy, 
He embraced Benjamin. And Benjamin did the same. Now, look at this. Then, okay, then Joseph kissed each of his brothers. Can you imagine that? And wept over them. And after that, they began talking freely with him. That's so profound. I mean, you could just take that passage and meditate on it for a while. Who is this a picture of? You can't help but see Jesus in this, right? Such a picture of Christ. This, this man, Joseph. No, no, no. Joseph, Joseph was not weak. Joseph was strong. Joseph was courageous. And Joseph was filled with love and grace. So now you can understand why at the end of the story that we started with in Genesis 50, why he's weeping again. After I kissed each one of you, after I've lavished my love and forgiveness on you, and I've taken care of you, how is it you can go back and make up the story about my father that he said that I needed to make sure I forgave you? How could you possibly think, after all I've done, that I would do this to you, that I would, that I would treat you in an evil way? And that's what caused him to weep. And it's what causes God to weep over you and over me. See, what do you mean by that? Well, if you've ever looked at the life of Jesus, he also weeps. Not because he's a weak person, a weak God. No, he is the son of God. And by the way, look at, look at religious history. Look at religion today. There is no other God that weeps. Only our God weeps. You know, over in, I believe it's Luke chapter 19, when Jesus was making his way to Jerusalem and he knew he was approaching the end of his life on earth that he was going to suffer and die, it says there in Luke 19 that he wept over Jerusalem. He wept over its rebellion, its sinfulness, its disobedience, and the judgment that was coming. Our Christ, our Savior, weeps over this world. He weeps over Minneapolis and the Twin Cities to see the evil that's taking place, to see the injustice, to see the anger, to see the hatred. He weeps. He weeps over his church when the church can't get along. He weeps over sin. In John chapter 11, Jesus wept. It's the shortest, one of the shortest verses in the Bible. It just simply says Jesus wept. He wept at the, the tomb where his best friend Lazarus lay dead. And Jesus knew he's about to raise Lazarus up from the dead. But he's weeping. Why does he weep? Because he sees the consequences of sin on our lives. He sees death. Christ weeps at the death of others. Innocent and guilty, he weeps when he sees what sin has brought about in our lives. In Luke chapter 22, though it doesn't specifically say that Jesus wept, it does tell us that there in the garden he cried and or there in the garden he was in anguish and he sweat blood drops of blood and I believe Jesus at that point was also shedding tears weeping for the cost 
of what it would take to redeem us from the hands of the enemy, a cost that Jesus willingly paid so we might have the hope of eternal life. Christ wept. Can I ask you a question? Two questions. Number one, do you believe that God's grace is greater than your sins, all your sins? If you don't, if you think somehow that your sin is too great for his grace to cover, it makes him weep because he paid such a price. Let me ask you another question. Have you slid back into a habit of sin in your life? An old habit that you confessed and given up? Have you relapsed again? Christ weeps because he died for that. He weeps because he forgave that in your life and in my life. You know, one of the things we haven't touched on, I just want to touch on it briefly, is this whole issue of forgiveness. You know, it's one thing to talk about vertical forgiveness, God forgiving us. It's important to talk about horizontal forgiveness. We forgive others. We've got to be willing to forgive others. You say, wait a minute. Some people have hurt me terribly. You just expect me to just say, hey, no problem, and let it go? Nope, I, I, that's not what I'm talking about by horizontal forgiveness. A lot of people misunderstand that. If you look at the life of Joseph, Joseph never looks at his brothers and say, hey guys, forget about what happened back in Canaan. It's no big deal. Let's just pretend nothing ever happened. He never says that to them. He speaks the truth to them. He reminds them several times about the evil that they did towards him. But Joseph didn't focus on them and their evil. He focused on God. Now, I don't know if you caught it or not in the narrative, but he says this. He says, am I God that I can punish you? That's a significant question. His point to them is, you guys shouldn't fear me, you should fear God. God is the only one who has the right to judge you and punish you. I don't, I'm a sinner too, saved by God's grace. So I focus more on what God is bringing out of what you've done to me rather than what you've done to me, because God used what you did to do this in my life. And I, I've been thinking, can't we do the same? Can't we be so overwhelmed by God's grace in our lives that we can look at others and treat them the same way? Hey, listen, I'm going to speak the truth in love to you. What you did to me, what you said about me is evil, it is wrong. You caused hurt and damage. But you know what? God has taken that and used it to do this in me. And out of that to do this, whatever that might be in my life or in other people's lives. I'm not God. It's not up to me to exact vengeance on you. You're going to have to answer to God for what you did or what you said. But I'm a sinner too. I'm extending you forgiveness. Now, you know, people can refuse Accept your offer of forgiveness. After that, you're free. You don't have to bear around that burden, that grudge anymore, which will destroy your life if you go through life with a grudge. The Bible tells us, read Romans 15, the Bible tells us that God is going to settle every unconfessed account some 
day. Vengeance belongs to God, a truly righteous judge, not to you and me. So I can accept the fact that God is going to deal with all the injustice and all the inequity. It's not handled the way I think it should be handled. God is going to deal with it someday. There's an eternity coming. And that gives me the capacity to move on. I think with so much of what we're seeing and facing in our culture and our society today, that becomes so important. Because when we become vengeful, it becomes so dangerous. There needs to be justice. There needs to be truth. But we also have to understand that everything that we somehow believe was unjust, that was done to us or done to others, it is going to be settled in the court of God someday. So I have three questions, or actually I have three homework assignments for each of us, myself included. Here's what they are. Number one, I want to challenge you to rejoice in the grace that is greater than all your sin. I want you to celebrate that. You've been forgiven. All your sin, the, the slate has been wiped clean. God sees you every day as though you had never sinned because of what Christ did for you and me. Let's not mull around in our past Let's not keep digging up what we did or what others did. Let's celebrate. Let's rejoice. We are forgiven. That's what sets us apart. And while there may not seem like there's a lot in this life, in this COVID you know, year that we've been through and continue in, well, while a lot of people are kind of down and discouraged and it may not seem like there's a lot of joy, my goodness, the joy of what Christ has done for you and me. Let's rejoice in that. You sit there in your home watching me, your apartment, or one of our campuses, and may I just invite you to come back as soon as you can. Join us here in worship, because there's just something when you're with the body. We rejoice together in what Christ has done for us. Number two, repent and return from any old sin habits you slipped into. You know, in the old days, they talk about backsliding, okay? All right, the whole idea here is that I've, I've slipped back into old sin. Listen, why do you want to go back to that? When you think of all that Christ has done for you, just right now, clean up, wash it out, get it rid of it. Renew and recommit yourself to the Lord. And last but not least, forgive and let go of any grudges. And I know, I know that can be a process. It doesn't happen overnight. I understand that, but don't get stuck and form a grudge. It will poison your life and it'll poison the lives of people who love you and care about you. Why don't you let go of that today? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice before you as your children in thanksgiving for what you have done for us through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. We celebrate that and we thank you for that. May we live in a continual spirit of joy and celebration that we are redeemed by the grace of God. And Lord, if you've put your finger on something in our lives today that grieves your spirit, his presence, we ask you, Lord, to forgive us. We confess it and we turn away from it and we want to go back to living a way that's pleasing to you. And finally, Lord, if there's somebody we need to forgive right now, Place that person's name in our hearts and our minds. 
Help us to speak truth to them. Not just say, oh, don't worry about it. Help us to speak the truth to them, but help us, Lord, to also do it in love. We pray that they will repent and receive the forgiveness and not stand before you someday in your court of judgment. God, we need you in these days. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, folks, next weekend, like I said, come and join us if you can at one of our campuses. We'd love to have you back. But however you spend time with us next weekend, we start a brand new series, Creed. You don't want to miss it. I'm going to talk to you over the next four or five weeks about what you have to believe in our day in order to survive. Our beliefs are under huge attack. And I want to talk about what is essential for us to know and to believe. I'll see you next weekend. God bless.